to your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are heading into everyone's favorite book in the Bible, uh, which is the book of Leviticus, which weirdly enough, and maybe your experience is like mine, it, it is um, more interesting and asking and causing me to ask more questions than uh, I previously expected of this book. Um, and um, But it's also complicated. There's also a lot of language that repeats, a lot of language that seems super foreign um, to how we operate and how we think about things because we don't. We don't have a tabernacle in, or at least how they would have had the tabernacle uh, in our days. There's no, we're not killing a bunch of animals and stuff like that uh, as part of our regular practice. And so sometimes reading through this, it feels a little gruesome. It feels a little foreign and um, just outside of our experience. And so it makes it a little trickier. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you just do kind of a cursory read, it can feel really, really boring but to get into the depths and dive into the depths of it requires so much work that you really have to be willing to take it on. Yeah. And the book almost feels like now that we have a tabernacle, now that we spent however half of the three of Exodus building this thing, what do we do with it? Mm-hmm. How do we maintain it? Uh, who's in charge of it? What are we allowed to do with it? What are we not allowed to do with it? Um, because they're still getting to know who Yahweh is. Yahweh's still kind of foreign to particularly this crowd coming out of Egypt. And so um, how are they going to relate to Yahweh? How is Yahweh going to dwell with them? What what can they do? Can they just approach Yahweh just on their own terms? What are the rules? All that kind of stuff becomes, I think, a lot of what this book tries to answer. Right. So yeah, the purpose of the tabernacle is for God to dwell among his people. And so this is kind of the practice of how God will dwell among people and what it looks like for God to be present within Israel, even though Israel is human and they are sinful and they are broken or they are impure and God is holy and different than them. Yeah, which is a big emphasis. It's a big emphasis in this book. Talk about holiness versus um, profaneness or commonness, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the idea of set apart or versus not, sacred space versus profane space, all that kind of stuff uh, ties in. And if you watched uh, the Bible Project video, which was awesome, yeah. um, th- this book also functions as a, a fairly large chiasm uh, with this um, day of atonement, this uh, one day a year that we'll get to next week, um, one day of year that is like a central piece of this book um, and a central part of, uh, I think, the lesson that the book is trying to convey. Yeah. And so let's dive into some of these offerings. Um, and I at least want to say right away, uh, the word offering in English, uh, that uh, some of the translators go back and forth between offering and sacrifice. Uh, really the only difference, uh, sacrifices are the ones that get eaten and offerings are tend to be not, at least in the Hebrew, uh, the translators kind of are a little more willy nilly, but in the Hebrew sacrifices get eaten. Offerings are just given or, and they're consumed by the fire. And so uh, we get this burnt offering right away. Uh, and uh, there's language around atonement. There's language around um, uh, things like that, uh, uh, making atonement, this, this sort of language. And the difficulty is, uh, once again, in Hebrew, atonement's a, a pretty wide term. And not only that, but we have a very particular usage of the word here uh, that sort of means to wipe clean or cleansing or a purging, uh, decam- decontamination kind of language around atonement. And so um, I think sometimes we immediately add our sort of uh, New Testament Greek use of atonement, which is sort of like a concealing of sin. Uh, to this word, but I think I think it's a little broader than that, and we'll see how some of that usage gets played out as we go. Um, but yeah, we get this this burnt offering, which 
in some ways we don't get a whole lot of uh, instructions on when um, it's not as if, Hey, when you have committed this sin, then go do this thing. Um, it, it sort of feels like, Hey, when you come to the tent, here's one of the things you do as if you're, um, I like to think of it this way as if, um, you were coming to, um, have the ear of the King, you're coming to have a meeting with the King of the universe, or if mm-hmm. you were a peasant, you're coming to meet with the King that you would bring a, a gift, um, sort of, uh, to this King, uh, to say, look, you are holy. You are more powerful. You are, um, the person in position I submit to you and I'm coming to bring this gift to you. Um, so, so when I come that you would honor that, that you would accept that, that, that it would, um, um, be, um, a sweet aroma. It would be pleasant to you for me to bring this to you. Yeah. And I think from the very beginning, we see that there is bloodshed required and that's to point us to, which we'll get into more later, the value of blood and the representation of blood, which then we understand from a different perspective in the new Testament. But again, we'll hit on that later. Yep. Um, but there's no explicit mention of the word sin here. So um, depending on which commentaries you're reading, you can go kind of different routes on that. We are going to get to offerings that, that seem a little more directed at breaking a law or breaking something that God desires, but that's not necessarily at play here. At least I don't think it is, but um, as I said, there's a lot of different ways to, to go with that. Um but there's specifics. Uh, there's a specifics in each of these. We're not going to get into all the different specifics to try to parse out. All right, is is it a handful of dough in the grain offering? We're not going to get into all the specifics. But um, yeah, and it's it's also really important to see like God almost always provides a way from the wealthiest people amongst the camp camp to the poorest people mm-hmm. to be able to come and to offer something. God's not going, hey, you can only bring me the most expensive thing possible. It's like, look, if you have nothing, bring a bird. And if you are wealthy, bring, bring a, bring a bull. Like that's what the expectation was. And so, um, yeah, no, it would correspond kind of with what you could afford. Right. So then we get into the laws for the grain offerings. Yeah. And this has a sort of Thanksgiving memorial. God, you, you are the one who has given to us. Um, and, and there's some sprinkling with salt and there's some explicit language there. Um, and salt always has a bit of a covenantal tie in for, for God's people around the covenant, like David's covenant is called a covenant of salt and there's others that are referred to in sort of the salt language. And I think it's now remembering the, the, the covenantal nature of God, that God, you are the one who took us out of Egypt and we are thankful for that. We are bringing these things to you and they would bring this grain, the sort of semolina and, and cook it. Yeah. Well, asking God, remember me. And it, it makes me think of what we read in Luke with the guy on the cross next to him who said, remember me, Jesus. He's asking for a remembrance. Yeah. And I think another thing to note is that grain was a highly valued thing by the Israelites because it couldn't be grown in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. So it, there was a cost right. to offering God that grain. And there's so many little things. And, and as I said, we're just not going to get into the nuts and bolts, but like even the, 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 the non-use of honey, which is really just like something excreted, which is a little weirder, but um, it had a tie in like pagan practices. So uh, there was definitely a, a mention of, Hey, when you bring it, don't bring honey in it because that's what the pagans do. So don't do that. Your, your, your offering is going to be different than the pagans practice. Um, and then we get these peace offerings, um, mm-hmm. which in some ways it's, it's, um, it's, it's Shalom here in some ways, uh, the sort of idea of, of, of peace or well-bringing or well-being, uh, for the people. Uh, and this is the one where they do get to eat finally. It is actually a, a meal that gets to be had, uh, between God and the sacrificer and the priest, uh, would all sort of partake in this meal. God had his own section, which was like the fattiest 
part of the animal. Um, Which is like the very best part of the animal yeah, is yeah. considered to be. Um, and uh, and then we'd eat together. And so it, it, just dealing even with these first three, in some ways, uh, I was talking to Sarah about this. Uh, like, I think the first one becomes like approaching the king for the first time and I have a gift for you. And then another gift that goes, hey, and remember, like, I'm, I'm part of your covenantal people and you have done this for us, but you've also agreed to be my God and I've agreed to be your people. And and then the third one becomes, okay, now let's talk. Like now let's sit down. Let's have this meal. Let's let's have this communion, this this connection uh, between the two of us. It, it sort of has a growing personalness as it goes. That's really cool. That connection and the step-by-step to that relationship with God. Yeah. So, but then we move into laws for sin offering. Yeah. Um, the difficulty here, once again, is the word atone or even the the the, the chatata, the the word used for sin offering. Uh, probably might might make more sense to to describe it as sort of a, a purification offering, a, a cleansing offering, um, which we'll see kind of play out later when we get to some of the cleansing questions of things that are natural, things that are part of life, like giving birth to children, and then why do we have to do a sin offering when we give birth to a child, which is like one of the things we were even told to do in the garden. And so, um, yeah, trying to, trying to parse that out. And, and so, um, but what seems to be at play, at least emphasized a lot, or like this idea of unintentional sins, mm-hmm. um, that, um, there's all these ways that we can break God's law. And we, we, we didn't intentionally do that. We weren't really thinking about that. Um, as Spurgeon says, no amount of sincerity can turn injustice into righteousness or transform falsehood into truth. It's, it's look like, um, uh, a violation of God's law is still a violation of God's law, whether you meant to or not. And, um, and some of that's true in even our law system. Intent is not always on trial. It's whether you broke the law or not. And so um, God's kind of dealing with that saying, look, like I'm, I'm so holy that even your unintentional uh, breakage of my law, there, there needs to be something that you bring to the table. There needs to be some sort of sacrifice, some sort of cleansing uh, for me to be in the same presence as you, this this idea of holiness. Like he is so other that there needs to be something set up so that we and him can be present uh, in the sort of same, same world, the same space. Yeah, I think it's something that's hard for us to understand or to want to think about in our modern culture where truth is so relative. But understanding that God is holy all the time and even unintentional sin is an offense against God. So even when we sin and we don't intend to or we don't realize we are, it is an offense and it needs to be atoned for. Yeah, yeah. The the whole idea that God um, is holy is is pretty huge in terms of what is really trying to be unpacked in this whole Leviticus explanation of, of look, like God, God is this other being and um, we are not like him right. in so many ways. We're not like him in some ways we are, but in many ways we're not. And, and so um, we, we can't just haphazardly just show up in his presence and be, and that be okay. Um, that uh, there's a distinctness and otherness to God. And um, the, the beauty is he goes, but I want you to, and here's how you can. Um, and, and he gives us a way, a method and of, of being in his presence of, of, of being, of him being present with the people in, in Israel. And ultimately we'll see that with what Jesus does, but um, it, it's such a beautiful picture, but it's also recognizing like, look, God is, God is really other than us. Um, mm-hmm. And for us to understand that. 
And he's not going to compromise any of who he is yeah. to be with us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we get laws around gift offerings, and some of this is sort of like, um, well, when you come around to realize that you screwed up on something, um, or there's even a few that feel a little more intentional around like deceiving a neighbor or something like that, um, there's there's uh, rules and things to, to be done for those things too. Um, I think it's really interesting, and, and this is where I've, I've sort of been parsing out a little bit of Leviticus in, in my own mind of like, um, there are there are ways to break the laws. Uh, some of those are around breaking things that are unclean, and there's a whole lot of sacrifices for those. Uh, there's things around uh, unintentional sins, and there's a whole lot of sacrifices for those. There seems to be some pseudo-intentional sins, at least in this section, and there's a bunch of sacrifices for those. And then there's like the rest of the law, which is like, hey, if you break the sin with like adultery, then then here's the sacrifice. It's your own life. There's there's capital punishment. There's not necessarily mm-hmm. here's the thing you could bring to the temple because you committed adultery. Like there's there's punishment, and the beauty of what Jesus does. Is, is ultimately become the sacrifice for all of those things, which they didn't have in the old system. The old system was only um, uh, sacrifices for a smaller section of dealing with God's law. It didn't cover all, everything. And Jesus comes along going, no, 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 no. I, I will deal with your sins of omission and your sins that, that you didn't even realize you were doing. And I will deal with the sins that you even intentionally committed. Um, like, and, and so for Jesus and, and for the first century crowd to, to understand these Jewish people to go, wait a minute. Jesus is a sacrifice for all of those sins, like the the guilt, the conscience, the stuff that I've had to walk around with because of other sins that I've committed that I, I can't figure out how to atone for. Jesus deals with that and Jesus mm-hmm. covers that. And what a what a more massive picture of um atonement and cleansing Jesus actually is compared to what the temple was. Mm-hmm. Um That's I good. think it's pretty revolutionary. Yeah. And so we get the priests. Uh, there's some very specific instructions on how they need to butcher these animals. Cool. <laughs> I mean, it is particular, and that's really what matters to God is, hey, here's the particular ways I want you to do this. But, um, yeah. But understanding, again, that if you are to go before God, you need to be prepared. And there is a certain way that God will accept sacrifices and certain ways that he won't. And then sort of one of the last steps, they, they set up this order of priests uh, to, to manage, to run, to, to, to handle all the sacrifices. Here's the collection of people and the consecration of them, the sort of setting apart of them. They would look differently. They would have their own special cleansing practices, their own special offerings, all this kind of stuff. And, and, and there was like a, a pattern of seven days uh, that would eventually set up this first celebration. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get, uh, yeah, the Lord accepts Aaron's offering. The Lord, uh, this is sort of the, the celebration that the glory of the Lord like appears yeah, to the, so in good. the temple. Um, and, and it's such a, a beautiful thing. And, and, and people react, uh, to God's spirit coming. Uh, right. They, Israel shouts and they fall face down. And that's something worth noting when people have an encounter with God in the Bible, they almost always end up on their face. Yeah. Because they are confronted with the holy presence of God. And it just makes me think about how often I end up on my face when I pray to God or when I worship God. Or if I have put God into a sort of box where I I only want to pull out certain aspects of his character that I'm comfortable with or that resemble humanity instead of the characteristics of God that resemble how God is other, how God is holy, how God is omniscient or omnipotent. Those things are harder for me to understand or wrap my mind around and they make me a little bit uncomfortable. And so it's it's not always the part of worship that I go to. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we are in a culture that leans not towards the holiness of God in terms of how we think and, um, yeah, how much do we, do we go there? Uh, and so, um, and then we get the story of people who don't go there. Right. But uh, before that, I just yeah, want to yeah. note that when the glory of the Lord appeared, fire came down. And I want you to remember that for next week when we read through Acts and Pentecost, or maybe that's in two weeks, sometime soon. Yeah, it's next week. Uh, and then the death of uh, Nabad and Abihu, uh, who are Aaron's, ki- Aaron's kids, who um, right away, this is like opening ceremonies, and they seem to have totally botched it. Uh, God has just laid out, here's how I want you to worship me. Here's how I want sacrifices. Here's the places I want you to go. Here's the places I don't want you to go. Here's all the things I need you to do. And then they just kind of show up and do their own thing. Uh, it seems like by chapter 16 that it seems like what, what they probably did was go into the Holy of Holies, and they used a fire that wasn't the one that God wanted them to use. And so um, they just kind of did their own thing. They attempted to, to, to make their own choices. And so, and maybe this, what? If they're coming from a background of worshiping other gods or pagan worship, you know, these people would kind of do whatever they felt like was the right thing to do to convince this God because those gods were fickle. They would change their minds and there weren't always a ton of consequences for their decisions. And so now they are coming into contact with the living God and that's different for them. So they probably were surprised that that it wasn't turning out how they expected it to as well. Yeah. And I think there's some parallels too, even of the golden calf story, even the early church uh, and uh, the two that had to be struck dead because they were lying in the early church, like these big movements of God and sort of at least a story of, of some part of the community just botching it. Um, and, and just to go like, no, 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 like this is important and, and, and trying to overemphasize the importance of what's happening here. And I think there's even a tie into the Lord's Supper, like um, when Paul is speaking of like, look, what, the sacrifice and, and, and when you take of the body and you take of the blood, like there's pictures there of what happens in Leviticus. And Paul speaks of some that were taking it poorly and, and ultimately getting sick from it and stuff like that and death. And so um, I, I think there's still some sense of that we should have as New Testament believers of just truly the holiness of God and what he has called us to do or to practice or to be like. Yeah. And a pretty sobering understanding that there is heavy accountability and there are consequences for those who lead God's people and don't do it well. Yeah. Just doing worship how you think it should be done may not match what God has actually said about those things. And so, um, yeah, it's good. Good caution. Um, New Testament. (laughs) It can be. Um, New Testament. Uh, So Luke 22, we're uh, kind of, not only do we start Leviticus, but we end the gospel in this time, uh, or at least come to Jesus's death and resurrection. And Peter denies Jesus, uh, doing exactly what Jesus had predicted Peter would do. Uh, And Peter, who had been so bold to say, I'll I'll be there till the end, the first time somebody who is very identified as of no significance, this little servant girl uh, comes along and Peter immediately is like, no way. I don't know who that guy is. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's meant to just show like no matter the best intentions uh, when, when put to the fire may not, may not go that far. Um, And so, yeah, Peter's struggling. Yeah. I think now that we know the end of that story with Peter, I think we just see the mercy of God in this. You know, Peter realized finally after this encounter that he cannot do these things on his own strength. He cannot will himself to not deny Jesus. Yeah, Uh, The sin he displayed was already inside of him, but it was being exposed so that Peter could repent and find grace and be all the better because of it. And so we don't, 
I think it we should be cautioned anytime we say I would never yeah. kill someone or embezzle money or have an affair uh, because then we're putting trust in our own strength and ability rather than the grace of Jesus. Yeah, but on the flip side of that, the the idea that he could never forgive me. Um, mm. I, I think I think the difference between Peter and Judas was that question. Yeah, and I think Peter good. Peter comes to returns to his savior, going, "All right, can we, can we work this out? Do, will you have forgiveness for me?" And I think Judas thinks there's no chance. Yeah. That's really good. And then Jesus is mocked uh, right after prophesying that Peter will do that. They come along going, you you can't prophesy. Uh, and so, um, yeah, and he's just beat. He's suffering and in pain. It's definitely uh, getting gory in the storyline. Uh, and if you've seen movies, some of them present that pretty well. Yeah, this part's always hard for me to read. I'm always tempted to skip it because it, it just stings and it hurts to read if I really want to feel what's going on. And even through having studied the first 22 chapters of Luke, I fall in love with Jesus again in a new and a different way. And so then feel like I, I lose him for a moment. It's really yeah. sad. And depending on when you're doing this to your Bible, you might be in the middle of Passion Week as you read this. And so uh, I hope so. I, I hope that that time was perfect, like God's Kairos timing and making that happen. Um, but uh, just the weight of the, the the Passion Week as this plays out. So Luke uh, goes, or in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus goes before one trial, uh, just one. Uh, and we know from other gospel writers, there was at least another one kind of secretive cloak and dagger at night. Um, but uh, this group really wants to just bring charges to Jesus and is ready to take him before um, at least the Roman uh, ruler at the time uh, who would have been able to crucify because the Jews weren't allowed to do that. And so. Um, yeah. So the council questions Jesus as Christ and as a son of God. And Luke makes a lot of points out a lot how Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. So Jesus says, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand. And I just want to read to you a reference from Daniel 7. In my vision at night, Daniel says, I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then we'll hit Psalm 110 even more next week. But everything Jesus says here is referencing to the fact that he is a fulfillment of these prophecies. So the Jews that were hearing him say these things were immediately being taken back to these passages of Scripture that they knew. Yep, absolutely. Um, the Old Testament is all over. Um, I mean, it's all over the Gospels to begin with, but certainly as Passion Week kind of plays itself out from sun, the previous Sunday on to the next Sunday, uh, it's pretty uh, it's pretty direct. So Jesus appears before Pilate. Pilate definitely feels like just a, a bit of a political gamer. And he's sort of like, hey, whatever keeps the crowds at bay, whatever keeps you guys a little bit happy. Uh, and they're playing the same game. They're trying to bring out any accusation that can get him in Roman trouble. So like they're like, hey, he's not paying taxes to Caesar. Jesus isn't paying taxes to Caesar. He's perverting the nation. Whatever's going to get the Roman representative fired up. But you got to imagine, Jesus has not started has not started any riots. The only person that's even gotten injured is Peter cutting off somebody's ear, and Jesus healed that on, on sight. Uh, and so for Pilate, like he's done, Jesus has literally done nothing. And is, is he's a homeless itinerant preacher. His collection of people following him are probably not the most military-minded other than some of the zealots. And so he, he, Pilate's probably standing there going, what? This guy's nobody. Like, why don't you go up to Herod? Like, he's a Galilean. Go deal with him. And so he does. 
uh, Jesus has to go before Herod. Yeah, I think Luke is very clear to point out the fact that it was the Jews and really the Jews alone, Jesus' own people who were trying to force him to die. Uh, Pilate didn't care, and then we'll see that neither did Herod. Yeah, yeah. Herod, Herod shows up as sort of, uh, um, in my mind, I, I go back to Android Weber's uh, Jesus Christ Superstar a little bit here, at least the movie version, because he's just like this chubby, uh, hedonistic, like he has all these women around him, and they're feeding him grapes, and he sort of has this attitude of like, Jesus, perform your little tricks for me. Like, show me the magic that you have. Um, and and Jesus doesn't do it. And um, not only that, but Jesus is standing there against, right in front of the guy who, f- f- under a really weird story, has killed um probably somebody that Jesus was very close to in John the Baptist. And so um, it's just a weird situation, but Jesus doesn't do what he wants. And eventually- Yeah, it's so interesting. I would think that if Herod was asking him questions, he would be like, oh, this is a chance to share. But instead, Jesus just refuses to answer. Yeah. So Herod eventually gets bored and starts to make fun of him and mock him. Yep. Start act- treating him like a, a fake king in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has to go back before Pilate. And somehow Herod and Pilate become like BFFs after this. But um, Yeah, Isaiah 53, we read that Jesus had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We're still seeing the fulfillment of this from the different prophecies. Yeah, he's he's just taking it and standing there. Um, yeah, in, in In some ways, in just straight defiance by his non-answering. But Pilate continues to find nothing, but he wants to appease the crowd and is willing to have Jesus at least kind of beat in this process. Um, it seems like he's got some kind of traditions during Passover to appease the people, including letting a prisoner go. And he goes there too, um, that he's willing to to let this one prisoner go for the people uh, and gives them an option. And, and there's a little bit of church history here of... Um, some of the earliest manuscripts called Barabbas Jesus Barabbas uh, and Barabbas means son of a father. And so they're mm-hmm. sort of presented with two Jesuses. Do you want the one that's like you guys, who's the son of just um, another man? Or do you want the one who's the son of father, like God of the universe? And they want the one that's like them, just like we do all the time. But um, yeah, they pick Jesus Barabbas. Yeah. So again, we see in the court system, Jesus has done no wrong and yet he's still going to be crucified. Yep. And then we get to uh, the worst part of the story in the crucifixion. And um, there's a lot of different ways to talk about the crucifixion. It is so momentous in the storyline. The angle I at least want to take for this podcast, because I think it's, it's, it's interesting given the type of literature we're dealing with, as I I think I covered in one of the podcasts, like this is, this is gospel literature and what gospel literature was. um, And it was going around certainly at Jesus's day, a couple hundred years before Jesus started um, was um, particularly with Roman leadership. uh, They would create this story stories uh, as sort of, um, here's the king, here's what the king has done, or here's the new king that's been born. Here's what the king is going to usher in with his kingdom. Here's the victory this king has had on the field. And it would become this sort of messages that would go around. It would be called good news um, to portray who this king is and what the king um, has done and what his kingdom is going to look like. And so these these writers of, of at least the f- first four books of the New Testament, these, these gospel writers are writing in, in a lot of ways in that vein. Uh, they're even using the word gospel, the, the, the word that would have been used for, for the Roman method to say like, look, we are telling a story of a king and a kingdom, but it is not about Caesar and it's not about Rome. And 
And they're picking up on a lot of those themes. Now, in some ways, Jesus might be picking up on some of those themes, too, and how he's uh, playing this out. Um, and so the crucifixion is certainly um, a big part of that. And we'll see this again uh, next week when we deal with Acts, at the beginning of Acts, too. But um, the crucifixion, uh, the, the, the coronation ceremony of a Caesar has so many overlaps with uh, what's happening here. Uh, the, in, 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 in the Roman story, the Caesar would meet uh, in the praetorium. He would meet with like the sort of leadership um, and Jesus has just met with Herod and and met with the leadership in the place. Um, Caesar would be clothed in, in the purple robe and the, the the clothing of royalty. And in 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 the story, Jesus gets that. In Herod's story, at least, he gets the robe. He gets these sort of uh, pictures of royalty. Uh, there's a crown and a scepter that's given. Uh, the other gospel writers hit on that. Luke just doesn't for some reason. Um, there's a processional that happens, and the processional uh, that Caesar would walk the processional and carry the instrument of death and, uh, for the sacrifice that was going to be had. And so he'd carry like a knife or a sword or something along those lines. And Jesus has a processional in the storyline and is carrying his own cross and and ultimately. Uh, can't even carry that himself. Somebody else needs to. Uh, and so, uh, but the instrument of death is going with us. Caesar would arrive at head hill, this Capitoline hill um, and, and head skull, all that kind of stuff had, had these parallels uh, to Jesus arriving um, at, at Golgotha or Calvary. Uh, Caesar would be offered wine. Uh, and would, would choose to refuse wine every time uh, to say that he was in need of nothing and Jesus refuses the wine that's offered to him. Uh, the bowl or whatever the sacrifice would be killed and Jesus dies on the cross. Caesar would pronounce life and death to criminals. There would always be sort of this a uh, pardoning moment like we do with our presence nowadays. Uh, this pardoning to show to show a certain crowd yes or a certain, certain crowd no. And Jesus does that with the criminals on the cross. The emperor would extend the steps, uh, and at his right and left would be uh, different people. And then um, Caesar would be called out by the crowd, Lord, or they would sing his praises. Uh, and then at that moment, everyone would wait for a sign from heaven, a comet, an eclipse, something supernatural to confirm that moment. And so there's all of these elements that I think either either Jesus supernaturally working through all these things, or the gospel writers going, no, no, no. Like th- this death of Jesus, him coming on the cross is his coronation ceremony as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so um, they are making this as straight as they can make, particularly to this crowds that are hearing this, particularly Luke and Mark, who, who are writing to a very Roman um, or at least Greek crowds that are going to be very familiar with these stories to go, no, 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 you think Caesar's King? He is nothing. This is the true King. And, and his throne is taken at the cross and it's foolishness. I mean, Paul will speak of it as like, this is foolishness to many people, but this is truly the King of King and how he became the King that he is. And so, um, yeah, there's so much beauty in that to me of, of how they're telling the story of, of not a, not a victim of a crime, not somebody that's like, ah, oh, it's so sad that this happened to Jesus. No, this is Jesus ascending in, in some ways to his throne. No one takes his life from him, but he lays it down uh, mm-hmm. by himself. And, and so this is such a picture of, of a God who's in control and who is telling a very different story than the one that Rome would tell. Yeah. And I, I'm not going to read all the verses, but over and over and over again, we see the fulfillment of more Old Testament passages, passages about people grieving for a firstborn son or Jesus having poured out his life unto death, being numbered with transgressors. And yep. it says in Isaiah 53, for he bore the sin of many and made the intercession for the transgressors. Um, 
We know that the religious leaders were the only ones who wanted him dead. Everyone else was sad. They were grieved at his death. Uh, But when this guy on the cross next to him says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, like I referenced earlier, I just think this is a good prayer for all of us. Um, Ask Jesus to remember you. Uh, like that grain offering or like this moment that even when he's on the cross, even when he's dying, he can remember us and cover us and that we can be freed and forgiven from our sin. Yeah. And Jesus dies. And um, one of the things that becomes such a fascinating tie into what we're reading at the same time is that this curtain in this tabernacle that we just read through the whole setup of the tabernacle. We set, we, we walk through all these offerings that, that, disconnect and that help with the connection between a holy God and a broken humanity. Um, it's, it's torn like and and the separation that, that separated us from God's holiness and our profaneness or whatever it is, or our uncleanliness, like that's dealt with mm-hmm. by this new and much better high priest who's, who's open that way, who's made it um, this beautiful connection between us and, and a holy God and just how, like if you were an ancient Israelite who, um, or a first century Israelite who has always sort of operated out of a little bit of this sense of, of fear and not knowing if you were clean enough and not knowing if all your sins were atoned for, if you just had the right heart or all the, there were all these sort of questions in the whole sacrificial system. And, and Jesus oh, bl- blows those up to go, hold on, no, your sins you are cleansed by my blood. We are the new tabernacle getting sprinkled with all the blood to be cleansed so that God can dwell in us. And it's such a phenomenal thing. We'll see that play out in Pentecost when, when the spirit truly comes, but um, it's such a beautiful picture of that curtain being torn. Yeah. And I, and it was dark for three hours. So think back for a minute where we recently have read about darkness covering the land. We read about it in the Exodus, right before the judgment on the firstborn in the plagues. So we see another connection to the Exodus as well. Yep. And and the one person that seems to get it, uh, which Luke and his good non-Jewish crowd that he's probably writing to, is a centurion. He seems to catch that this this Jesus was something else. Yeah. And then Jesus is buried um, uh, in sort of a a wealthy tomb in some ways. Mm Yeah. and and he rests he rests on Saturday, uh, which I think I mean Jesus has just done the work and and even finished he says on the cross it's finished he's just done all the work almost like God does all of his work in creation in Genesis one and then he mm-hmm. looks on all of his creation and he goes it is good and then he rests and and then on Monday starts again or Sunday I guess in the Jewish calendar uh, but in in, the, in in this moment I think Jesus has done everything he's going to do to usher in this new covenant. And, and so this new creation that he is ushering in, he, he's, he's done the work and now he's going to rest in, in the tomb on Saturday and then Sunday begin this whole new life with this new resurrected life that um, he is bringing to bear on this world. Yeah. So then we see that he is resurrected and you guys, this is it. This is what we live for. Everything in scripture points to what we just read, the death and the resurrection and of Jesus in order to reconcile all people to himself. It's written practically and it's written concretely in Luke, but be prepared to see even more of what this means as we jump into Acts and the Apostles. But just know that that the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. We can't just stop at the death. We have to understand the fact that the resurrection means that Jesus Christ defeated death for all time. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and even the angels at the tomb said like this must have happened. Like this is how it had to happen in some ways. And so that the creator of the universe who is holy and loving, who is totally other than us, like Leviticus has been painting us the picture of, yet desires and so loves this world that he was willing to to sacrifice to give his son and 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 to to find a way to reconcile a sinful broken unclean corrupt humanity to a holy clean god and and he sent his son who was like a prince who came for his subjects who have left the kingdom and, and to bring us back uh and and, and to make us like like the king to make us sons and daughters of this king uh, and to participate in all the all the good things that come with that and so yeah if it's <clears throat> if your picture of the gospel is is friday only if it's only the payment for sins and not this picture of like a resurrected life that we get a new creation life that we get on the other side of of Jesus' resurrection it might be a truncated gospel without that uh, that 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 is such a big part uh, of of who we are in Christ that like, we sing songs like death was arrested and my life began <clears throat> yeah death was arrested friday but our life began because of Jesus's resurrection um, mm-hmm. and um and and the gospel represents both those things the life death resurrection and I would argue the ascension return too, but um, yeah. Yeah, and it's pretty remarkable that the resurrection was first revealed to women. I want to point that out because they were considered to be unsubstantiated and unreliable sources. And yeah. so this pointing this out, first of all, is showing that women can be reliable sources, as we all know, but, but wasn't typically believed back then. Um, but also something that like people, when they're like, is the Bible really even true? Well, if somebody was making this up and trying to make it, be something it wasn't they wouldn't include that part yeah yeah it's not a it's not your best uh, use of characters to 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 use the women in terms of uh, historical normalcy uh you would use like a chief priest or someone that would have been of authority being like oh i found the tomb and he was gone but to use women yeah it, to me, that it just has to be true. Yeah. I also really like how Chris mentioned earlier that Peter ran to see what was going on. Peter wanted to make things right with Jesus. And like you mentioned, that's the difference between Peter and Judas is Peter pursued restoration and yeah. reconciliation. And Jesus does it for him too. Uh, I forget which gospel writer it is, but John. it says, uh, yeah, it says like, go get, um, well, it, we, we definitely get the stories in John, but I think it might be in Matthew too, where, where they say, um, where Jesus is trying to get the disciples to come uh, for his ascension. He's like, hey, go get the rest of the disciples and Peter. Mm-hmm. And he goes out of the way to make that statement. It's like, because Peter may not really think that he's still included in this group. And I want him to know he's still included. So All right. Uh, Psalm 69. Uh, we even get a little bit of language that, that parallels the crucifixion here. Uh, stuff like they also gave me golf for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, which uh, there's certainly pictures of things that happen uh, on, on the cross. It's a very messianic psalm. That um, Yeah, I hope as you're reading the psalms, you're getting more practice and kind of figuring out what each psalm is. And this one is an imprecatory, like we said before, where you're kind of speaking curses over other people. But it's also a messianic psalm, one that points us to Jesus Christ. So keep an eye out for those still. And then we get the last two psalms of the Song of Ascents, this collection of songs that they would sing usually in traveling to to the temple. Um, and so uh, the first one kind of speaks about kind of brotherly and sisterly love. It has a very communal feel to it. Um, and then that last one, um, actually, it's interesting because it sort of commends those who are working in the temple to like, hey, finish your work this evening. <laughs> Yeah. And so it seems like actually a good last song to sing on your way to the temple. And in Psalm 133 about the oil running down Aaron's beard, I hope that 
you can see a little bit more of the imagery in it since we read about the anointing of Aaron and the priest and we see oil running down his beard within that anointing. All right. What should we look for next week? So like you mentioned in the Old Testament, the center of the chiasm is in Leviticus 16. And so pay special attention to why that's there. And the New Testament, Luke 24, is really, really important for us in understanding how the Bible points to Christ. So what do you see as you read it, and how is Luke 24 an argument for us in knowing that all of the Bible points to Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection? Yeah. Um, uh, it's just confusing for me to figure out that's not those same things. Uh, yeah, I think uh, trying to understand maybe the difference between clean and sin. And so um, as you read through some of these things, try to, try to parse some of that out because some of it is just like stuff that happens naturally um, and, and trying to understand the difference between those two. Um, and then as we c- get into uh, the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, um, yeah, there's some more uh, Roman stuff happening in the beginning of Acts. We'll talk about that. If you want to do a little research, that might help too. Uh, and then watch the watch the the Bible Project video uh, as we sort of transition into Acts, uh, just to get a little bit of an overview of that story. But that's it, y'all. Thanks. Thank you.